Today we're going to talk a little bit about the work of God. And if you have your bulletin or your bookmark or something uh, in your Bible from last week, we were in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We're going to be there again today, so uh, if you left uh, some kind of marker there, you're going to be in good shape. Uh, we're going to be just a couple verses down from where we were last time. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes 7, and we're going to start in verse 13. I don't know if you've noticed or not, but the last few weeks that, um, that we've met together and have looked at the, uh, the Bible, uh, there's been kind of a common thread that's run throughout many of our texts, and that is uh, the idea of suffering or trials or temptations. And sometimes that's been the focus of the text, but at the very least it's, it's provided kind of a backdrop to much, much of what's been said. So today Solomon is going to talk a little bit about that. He's going to talk about both the good times and the bad times that we have in life and how we should handle those things. And, uh, and you remember last time, we talked about, we, we looked at verse 10, and we looked at the folly of living in the good old days. You might remember that, of, of always thinking that yesteryear or yesterday was better than today, and, and always complaining about those things. And one of the things that we noticed back then was, uh, you know, there's never been an age when things were either all good or all bad. And that's, that's, the, way, that's the way it's always been, it's the way it's, it always will be. And likewise, nobody's life is either all good or all bad. Now, some people tend to have a lot more of one or the other sometimes. It seems like there are some people, I mean, they, they have the Midas touch, everything they touch turns to gold. And other people, no matter what they do, they just can't seem to get ahead in life. And we've all known people uh, that are on both sides of that equation. But, um, but, it, but for the most part, life is a mixture of good and bad together. And these both come from God in one, in one form or another. And so we should consider the work of God, and that's what, this, uh, that's what this text is all about. Now, if you found Ecclesiastes 7, please stand with me in honor of God's Word. And we're going to pick up reading in verse 13. Solomon says, Consider the work of God, who is able to straighten what he has bent. In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other, so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. Thank you. you. May be seated. Now today we're going to look at a few immutable, unchangeable truths about the work of God. But first, I want you to notice that word right at the beginning of verse 13. And it's that word, consider. Consider. Now this word, you may have noticed in just two verses, is repeated. And it's repeated in this case because it's very important. Now, what does it mean to consider the work of God? Well, that word consider uh, means that you have your eyes open to it. You pay attention to it. You, 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 uh, you think on these things. In other words, we need to be on the lookout for God's hand at work around us. Because God is at work in your life and in mine and in, and in this world. And the things in this life are not circumstance, they're not happenstance, they're not dumb luck. I've noticed that there's this... Uh, there's this word I keep seeing uh, come up over and over in today's culture. It's that word karma. Maybe you've, maybe you've seen that or heard that a lot. There is no such thing as karma. There is an overarching, overruling, directing power of God called providence. And this is important because many times people, both Christians and non-Christians, blindly go through life. We don't pay attention to what God's doing. We just kind of uh, live life and, and don't really think about what God's doing. But Solomon, remember, he's, he's the wisest man that ever lived apart from Christ. He said, consider, pay attention to the work of God. Now, let's look at the truths that he lays out. There are four things I want you to see uh, in these verses. The first truth he mentions is in, is in verse 13. He says, 
You cannot successfully resist God's will. You cannot successfully resist God's will. The way that he puts it is he says, For who is able to straighten what he has bent? Who is able to straighten what he has bent? In other words, there are some things in this life that God has determined to happen, and if you try to, uh, to thwart that or work against it in some way, you're just beating your head against the wall. If you try to do that, it will not be fruitful. It's fruitless to resist. Now, some people kind of go to seed here, don't they? And they talk about the sovereignty of God, and they apply it in ways that I think do a disservice to some of God's other attributes. And you may be hearing this and thinking to yourself, Now, Pastor, I don't think you know what you're talking about. Because here's, here's a verse that I remember. Uh, God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. And there are people that perish and die and go to hell. Or you might be thinking about that, uh, that verse out of the book of Proverbs that, that talks about people being stiff-necked and rebelling and, and resisting against uh, God and His work and His Spirit in their lives. So what, how, how, do we, how do we make all this fit together? Well, that's a big topic, and we don't have time to cover it all today. And even if we did, I'm not smart enough to sort it all out. But there are a few things that I, that I can uh, sort out, and I, I want to share with you. Uh, the first thing is, is that we need to remember that there are different aspects to the will of God, and that, word, or that phrase, will of God, is used different ways in the Bible. One way it's used is to talk about God's sovereignty. It talks about His sovereign will. These are things that God has decreed. These are things that God has determined is going to happen, and people cannot thwart that. For instance, you think about the cross. Way back in Genesis, God started laying the groundwork for the coming Redeemer. And back, way back in Genesis 3, in, in the Garden of Eden, we have the verse that's called, the, you know, like I said, theologians have a big word for everything. They call it the Proto-Evangelum. Great big word that means there's going to be a Redeemer coming. Jesus is going to die on the cross. That was part of God's plan. His, his plan was to provide salvation for mankind by Jesus dying on the cross. And so nothing that could happen would stop, would thwart, would even hinder his plan from happening. So you, you, look, in, um, you look in the Old Testament and you compare it with Matthew 1. Of course, Matthew 1 is the lineage of Jesus. And we always skip that when we're reading through the Bible, right? We, oh, so-and-so begat so-and-so, so, and, and on down the line we think, oh, I'm not reading all that, I can't even pronounce the names. Uh, I'm just going to kind of breeze down through it. But if you'll look through there, there are people in Jesus' lineage who were, the Bible calls barren, infertility. Now, on a natural level, that would thwart Jesus being born, right? Because you can't, you can't uh, be born if you're... Uh, on up the family tree hadn't been born because of infertility. And yet, God overcame that. He worked a miracle in their lives, and He provided uh, a way for Jesus to be born. You think about uh, the Magi. They came to, to Herod, you remember from the Christmas story, and they said, where's the one born king of the Jews? He says, what? I thought I was king of the Jews. And so uh, he says, you, you go and find this, this king... And you come back and tell me where he is so I can worship him too. You remember all this? And he wasn't doing it to, because he wanted this information to worship Jesus. He wanted the information so he could kill Jesus. And so we have the slaughter of the innocents, and yet Jesus was preserved. We, as you read through the, through the Gospels, you see there were actually attempts on Jesus' life. They went to throw him over a cliff and different things because he made people so mad. And yet all these things, people tried to stamp out his life, and God overruled. So we have God's sovereign will where he says this is going to happen. 
But then we also have God's moral law, His moral will. And so these are things that God wants to happen, but people can choose to do it or not do it. So, for instance, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 17, we have this verse. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. The implication is some people don't do the will of God, right? We've already talked about that verse out of uh, the New Testament that says that God's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. We know that some people still go to hell. You think about the Ten Commandments, any of the Ten Commandments. God says, do this or don't do that, and people are free to choose to be obedient to what God says or disobedient. Now, sometimes we think, well, I'm going to violate God's law. I'm going to break it, but in reality, we get broken upon it. See, we, we think that we're going to be high and mighty and not do what God says sometimes, but even if we are successful in breaking one of God's laws, we're still a loser. It's like sitting on the top of the Empire State Building and jumping off. We may think we're going to violate the laws of gravity. We don't break the law of gravity. We are broken upon it. And you may break one of God's laws, but you're still a loser when you do it. And Solomon says we cannot straighten what God has bent. It is fruitless to work against the will of God. Because the declarative will, his sovereign will, if he says this is going to happen and we work against it, it's not going to work, we're not going to stop it. And on his moral will, we can violate his word, but we're still losers. So it is fruitless to work against God's will. We cannot straighten what he has bent. The second thing that he tells us is in uh, verse 14. We need to be happy in the good times in life. Be happy in the good times in life. Now, it is crazy that we should have a teaching for this, isn't it? In the good times in life, day of prosperity, be happy. Now, what does that mean? Well, folks, that isn't rocket science. When good things are happening, be happy. And even though it's not rocket science, we mess it up, don't we? I mean, it's so simple. If good stuff is happening, be happy. But yet Christians act like there's some spiritual reward for unhappiness. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, we, get a, we, we walk around all sad and morose all the time, and it's like we think that God is pleased, that we frown when we come to church. And somebody says, hey, brother, hey, sister, how you doing? Oh, not too good. Oh, things are not going well for me. Oh, but didn't you just get a raise? Didn't this just happen? Yeah, but you should, oh, maybe you should see what's going on in this part of my life. And in, in that silly, we, we go around, and, 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 and it's like this when you get a bunch of Christians together in a church. You realize that? A lot of churches have a bucket committee. And a bucket committee, if you don't know what that is, it's, it's a, an unofficial, uh, self-appointed committee of people. When God starts doing something in a church... And he'll light a fire under somebody. They're right there at the bucket to put them right out. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, it's like somebody I heard, a young person got saved and, and they talked to an older saint and said, I'm so excited. And they said, don't worry, you'll get over it. No, that's stupid. We shouldn't get over it. We should have happiness. We should have joy. And hear me, you have God's permission to be happy. And sometimes we don't enjoy the day of prosperity. And when he says prosperity, he's not just talking money. It can be that. But he's just talking generally about the good that we have in our lives. 
But a lot of times, we don't enjoy the good that we have because we're fearful about the day we might have tomorrow. We say, oh, well, it's so pretty out. Yeah, but we're going to pay for it in wintertime. Isn't that what we do? We say, we, we borrow tomorrow's clouds to cover today's sun. And Solomon says, on the, in the day of prosperity, be happy. And sometimes I think we feel guilty about enjoying life. 1 Timothy 6.17 says, God has given us all things to enjoy. Now, you think about if, if you have kids or you've given a gift to somebody. And just think on, just on a personal level, if you give something to somebody at Christmas time and they open up the gift, are you going to take more pleasure in the fact that they are enjoying the gift that you've given them? Or they say, oh, well, thanks, you know, in the real mopey. That, I think that's how God is. He gives us these gifts... And it brings him more honor, more pleasure when we enjoy those things instead of always complaining about something else. In the day of prosperity, be happy. And also, as you look down through verse 14, we need to recognize that that good comes from God. It didn't just happen. We're not responsible for it. Isn't that what we think? Many times we say, well, this good came about because of all this hard work I've done. But in the, the day of adversity, we think, well, God's the one that did this to me. No. We need to recognize that the good comes from God. And that's just what we talked about a few weeks ago. All good and perfect gifts come from above. So in the day of, adverse, or in the day of prosperity, be happy. But then he goes on in verse 14, look at what he says. But in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. We need to consider God's work in the day of adversity. Because sometimes he brings about or at least allows a day of adversity in our lives. Now, notice we're not supposed to respond like we did the first time. The first time in the day of prosperity, we're supposed to consider the work of God, but also to be happy. But in the day of adversity, we're not to respond in, in, with ill feelings. We're to consider the work of God. Now, I want to talk about the elephant that's in the room. This verse says, very explicitly, in black and white, God makes the day of adversity as well as the day of prosperity. So how do we reconcile this? It's easy for us to say, I see how a loving God could give us a day of prosperity. But yet this verse says that God also, this same God of love, gives us a day of adversity. What do we make of this? Well, again, this is a big topic. And we're not going to be able to cover everything today, but just a, a, a few thoughts to, to help us remember these things. The first is that in the Old Testament mindset, everything came from God, both good and bad. Why? Because God is ultimately in charge of everything. Okay, so at least in some sense, whether because God sent it or because God allowed it, God was, God was the one who was in charge of it all. Okay? Second... Sometimes God does bring about trials and difficulties. And we've, we've talked about this just recently. Why does he do it? A number of reasons uh, to test and grow our faith. Remember Abraham had to take Isaac up the mountain to sacrifice him. Sometimes there's a punishment for sin. The book of Hebrews says those that the Lord loves, he disciplines, he chastises. Uh, sometimes it's to teach us some spiritual truth. 
sometimes it's part of a, a bigger plan. You read in the book of Genesis, Joseph was a godly man, and yet he was falsely accused. He ended up in prison. And he had all this bad stuff happening for years of his life, and eventually he was made second in command of the most powerful empire on the face of the earth. And when his brothers came to get food, you remember there was a famine? And he said, you meant it for bad, God meant it for good. Why? To save the lives of many people. Sometimes it's part of a bigger plan. And there's also that purification aspect where God burns out the dross in our lives. But sometimes there are bad things that happen. Somebody gets cancer. Somebody dies an untimely death. You know, whatever it is that happens. And, and we have to realize that sometimes God allows bad to happen, though he does not desire it. And a lot of times we want to make a, a one-to-one correlation between sin and suffering, don't we? Well, if this person is suffering, it's because they've done some evil in their life. And sometimes that's true. But many times it's not. You think about the man born blind in, in John's Gospel. The, the disciples said, who sinned this man or his parents that he should be born blind? Jesus said, neither. Sometimes, now suffering is a result of sin in some capacity, but not necessarily a direct result. Sometimes you suffer for what somebody else has done. You think about Job and his life. He suffered, though he was a righteous man. And in those times of suffering, and sometimes when we cannot make heads or tails of what's going on, we can't understand the suffering, we can't understand the purpose behind it, and in those times we need to consider the work of God. That's our response, and, and the reason for that is there's some comfort there. Because considering the work of God helps us remember, ultimately there is some good that God can and will bring out of this in the lives of his children. Now let's face it, sometimes we don't know what that good is. Sometimes we don't know until after we've gotten through it, right? And then we can look back and say, oh, well, or maybe somebody comes up to us and says, you know, I, I was watching the way you handled this situation, and, you know, that I, I've just never seen anybody handle it like that. I've seen a lot of stuff happen, but you were different, or you were an encouragement to me, or whatever it is. Sometimes after we've gotten through the bad times, we can see the, the purpose. And sometimes, and this is... This is one of those things that it's not satisfying, but it's, it's a fact. Sometimes we just won't know this side of heaven. Sometimes we just have to trust that God knows what he's doing. And that's, that's called faith. And look at the end of verse 14, because he tells us the fourth and last thing I want to uh, bring out about the, the work of God. And that is the purpose behind all the good and the bad in our lives. God has made the one as well as the other. Why? so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. The purpose behind it all is to keep us from knowing what the future holds. Isn't that something? God gives us a balance of good and evil for the purpose of keeping us from knowing what's coming next. And I just want you to take a moment right now and think... What have you experienced in the last 10, 15 years? Just for ease of math, 15 years ago would have been 2000, the year 2000. Think about where you were, what was going on in your life in the year 2000. Would you have ever believed in the year 2000 that you would be right here today 
going through what you've gone through in your life. I got to thinking about that. And I got to doing some math. 2000, that's the year I got married. Got married in June. So I was still a newlywed. I was, I was living in Bolivar. I was in college. Man, we were so, we were so poor. We didn't have two pennies to rub together. I'm, we ate Totino's pizza and ramen noodles. But you know what? There's some good days in there, too. Even though we were poor. I, if you would have said in, two th- in the year 2000, if you would have said, Jeff, in 15 years, are you going to be the pastor of New Hope Baptist Church? I would have said, probably not, because I didn't know there was a New Hope Baptist Church. Because I got a call. We were living in Republic when I got the call. To come out here the first time to preach, I didn't know where in the world it was. I'd never been out here before. And I remember driving around and coming up this great big hill. And, and uh, man, it's, life is so much different now. Back then, neither one of us had any desire for kids. For several years, we didn't. And then we got a strong desire and then couldn't have any. And then we went through the whole infertility struggles and foster care and adoption. If you would have told me in 2000 all that stuff would have happened, I I probably wouldn't have believed it, or if I would have, I wouldn't have been too excited about it. Right? I think about our church. I haven't been here 15 years yet. Almost 11. It's gone fast. And I think about just in the 11 years that I have been here. The changes that have happened in this church. And I got to doing some math and I tried and I tried to remember back eleven years who was here whenever I came. And I did my math. And if my math is and I'm not a math major, but if I did my math correctly, about twenty percent of the people that were here when I came are now homebound. Over thirty percent have passed away and over forty percent have left the community. That is around 90% of the people that were here when I came are no longer here. And yet the numbers have stayed the same or maybe even gone up. That's big change for a church. We've seen people get saved, baptized. We've seen people come and go. We've reached folks with the gospel. There's more engagement now. Used to when I came there were two kids, and for a while there were zero kids. And now we have, it's like a beehive sometimes. It's all the activity. And it's great. I love it. And just think about your own life, though. In, in 2000, since 2000, think of all the relationship changes. Maybe you've made friends, broken up with friends. Maybe there's been job changes. Uh, maybe you've moved to a different location. And that's just in a short amount of time. And some of our changes are good and some of them are bad. But either way, one thing is for certain, we don't have any idea what's coming next, do we? And that's the point. Because we cannot predict the future, it helps us appreciate the present and trust God for the future. Right? Because, because we look at it and we think we're in control of things until we start thinking back to what's happened in the last few years. And all of a sudden we realize, man, I really am not in control. Ray Stedman had a, a great couple lines. He said, God has designed life to be full of the unexpected so that we might realize that we do not control our future. We are not in charge of life. The great satanic lie 
that subtly comes to us a thousand times a day is that we are gods, we are in charge, we can plan, we can direct, we can control. Because within the freedom of will that God has granted us, there appears some truth to that. We easily believe the rest, that we are ultimate, in ultimate control of everything. But the lesson of the scripture driven home again and again is that that is not true. God is in charge. What he sends us is always designed to benefit. So how do we sum this up? Well, remember that, uh, that show from the 80s? had a theme song that went something like, you take the good, you take the bad, you take them both, and there you have what? The facts of life. The facts of life. And that sums up pretty well what Solomon's saying. God gives us a lot of good things in life, and when he does, you enjoy them, be happy in them, in your good times. Recognize that comes from God. It doesn't come from you. It's not luck. It's not chance. It's not karma. God did it in your life. Be happy. Do good to other people. And in the day of adversity, in the day of bad, consider that since this came through God's filtering fingers, there must be a purpose somewhere in there. So be on the lookout for that purpose. But the overarching idea is that either way we need to trust God. And so we can say like, like the one writer said, and I'm, I'm just paraphrasing what he said, don't make me so prosperous and, and, and have so much that I forget God. And don't let me get so poor that I, that I abandon God that I turn my back on him. The Bible says we need to trust God. Lean not in your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And he'll direct your paths. Why don't you stand with me as musicians come. And as you stand, I ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And just in this time, I want you to think about, again, just think about what God has done in your life. What has happened in the last 15 years, 10 years, 5 years? We have no idea what's coming next. Some of the stuff that happens to us, both, I mean, sometimes we, we have bad things happen. We're like, where, why did God send this? Sometimes it's our own, our own fault. Sometimes it's the fault of somebody else. Sometimes God sends it our way. But you know, we need to consider the work of God. And maybe you're going through a time in life when you need to uh, consider what God's doing. You're probably not going to figure it out. Because God doesn't lay out a map for us. He says, walk with me. In the day of prosperity, be happy. It's okay. God said to do it. And if God says to do it, he's not going to get mad at you if you do it. Be joyful. Enjoy the good things he's given you. Do good to somebody else with it. You know, a lot of times we talk about God working all things out for good, 
But the, the verse goes on to say, to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. That's for Christians. And if you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, you don't have a right to that verse, frankly. Because God's in the process of working things out for his children. And I'm not going to stand here and tell you that if you accept Christ, things are all going to be smooth sailing. That's not the case. There's still going to be good and bad. But if you've never accepted Christ, the Bible does say that you stand condemned before a holy God because of your sin. But if you will repent of your sin, if you'll turn your back on it and ask God to save you, to forgive you of your sin, he'll do it. If you've never done that, I would encourage you to do that today. There's no more choice than, that you can make. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you are uh, overruling, that no matter what it is that we face, that you have uh, either sent it or allowed it. And because of that, that you're involved in it, you care about us, you care about what's going on, and you're you have an ultimate good that you can bring out of any situation, even when, even when we are at fault. And God, I ask that you would uh, help us to trust you, help us to be happy in the good times, and to consider in the bad. And God, if there's somebody who doesn't know you, I, I pray that you would convict them and let them become your child today. In Jesus' name. Amen.